0: If you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Romans, Romans 3. First of all, this morning we got to start with a little bit of family business. Um, I have the privilege of being your pastor and let me tell you, I love you and I am so proud of you. I really am. I mean, just to be here uh, during our fall festival to see how many of you all helped, thanks, to see Jim and Kim Johnson as the plumber and, and Sarah Palin. I mean, it scared us to death, but <laughs> Diana Kent over here uh, doing the cakewalk. Uh, to see Beth Rich manning a table, Carol Ball. To see our own um, uh, Carol Hansen, our, our elementary school principal, here after hours, loving on kids. It's just awesome to see how you all have given of your life how you love Jesus enough to love your neighbors. And I am so proud of you. And then to think of this offering that we just gave uh, for our deacons and for Haiti, and to see you respond. Can I just say, I am—I love you. I mean, I'm a big guy. I wish I could give you a group hug. Um, But I I really, just walking around here on Reformation Day, we call Fall Festival, um, and to see your faces and your families and bringing your friends, and to see you give Yahoo! Keep it up. Good work. Vicki and David Chef on July 20th, 1982, had the joy that many of us have. They became parents. And they named their baby boy Nick. And on that day, like all parents on that first day, all the hopes and the dreams of having a, a son, um, all the dreams of what he will become, who he will be, They certainly shared. But life was hard. It's hard for all of us. And really, after three years into his young life, the parents' marriage hit hard times. It crumbled. And at three years old, Nick became like most American children. He was going to be raised in a broken home. Very painfully, they go see a judge. A judge makes a very, very difficult decision Where is Nick going to live his life? The judge, through sighing, says, well, he's going to live with his dad in San Francisco through the school year. He's going to fly to L.A. or get to L.A. and spend the summers with his mom. Both loving mom and dad, not believers. Nick, about age 12, decides to start experimenting with drugs. And lonely, kind of depressed kid, Uh, begins his journey into drugs one day. His dad, going through his book bag as the kids were over for a sleepover, finds marijuana. Doesn't know what to do. He's 12. He uh, grew up on the West Coast, uh, did Dave, and he himself, the father, experimented with some drugs. Tried to be very open with his son about the dangers of drug use. Wrestled with what to do, went and saw church counselor or school counselors and other counselors to talk about their son. How do we help him? Well, his drug use continued, and by eighteen Nick tries meth, crystal meth, and becomes addicted. And through a series of stints in the rehab, a story is written, a best selling novel called Beautiful Boy. Written by David Sheff about his son, Nick. It's an unbelievable story that's captured my heart. I won't tell you the ending. Uh, it's not a Christian book, but you'll see God in it very, very clearly. But really, the bottom line of that story is this it, makes, it breaks every dad's heart, it breaks mine as I read it. It was a father's inability to rescue his son, his son had an addiction. And an addiction that as much as he loved his son, he wasn't able to rescue him from that addiction. The story is about a son's inability to heal himself. Who gets so deeply involved into drugs and so deeply involved into an addiction that he cannot shake it. According to scripture, we are all born with an addiction. According to Scripture, we come into this world not as blank slates, but we come already addicted to sin. It's part of our nature. It's who we are. It's, we are going to sin because we are sinners. We're addicted to it. We're plagued by it. And it affects everything. But the story of the Bible is such an incredible story and it's such a story of good news because it's about a story of a dad, a heavenly father, an Abba father who does have the ability to rescue lost sons. And it's so good to know that there is a father who is able to break the addiction. There is a father who is able to rescue the nicks of the world like you and me. It's a story of the Bible. a story of rescue. A rescue of children. Children like you and me who are lost. And who cannot save themselves. It's a story that we can't even help ourselves. We can't even get ourselves ready to be saved. But a God who rescues. We will realize that as we read God's Scripture, we read His Word, that we have a God that's so much greater than we ever imagined. And we will also realize that we are a lot worse than we'd ever dare to admit. In this month of December, we're going to be looking at something called the doctrines of grace. For some of us, I'm going to ask you to get on your toes and reach, because we're going to grow this month. There's going to be some teaching this morning and, and the next several weeks that are going to be uh, maybe something new. But I guarantee you, not new to God's word, because this is all you're going to get from this preacher, is God's word. It's all I have. But we're going to ask you to grow. We're going to ask you to know, and we're going to ask you to go, just like we have been all year long, uh, since the fall. And we're going to ask you to get on your toes. We're going to ask you to put on your thinking caps. We're going to ask you to pray, because this is incredible stuff as we go through this doctrines of grace. And here's what they basically are. We're going to spend this month looking at how gar- gracious our God is. And how he works to rescue his children. The bottom line is this. We're going to spend the whole month saying, okay, God, we want to see how you rescued us. And see how unbelievably sovereign, we'll explain that in a minute, how great, how awesome, how mighty you are. We're also going to spend the next several weeks realizing and looking at Scripture, realizing how much grace his children need to be rescued. We're going to begin this morning by focusing on our need, our depravity. Our sinfulness. So let's look to God's word. This is this is this is ultimate for us. This is our authority. This is our guide. Uh, this will never lead us astray. We're going to look at two uh, verses uh, of scripture, two portions of scripture, starting with Romans three. So if you'll turn with Romans three, if you don't have a Bible, the words will appear on the screen. But whether you have them in your lap or you're hearing them or you're reading them, let's be mindful that. This holy, awesome, eternal, mighty God we've been singing about. This is His Word. Romans 3, verses 10 through 18, verse 23. Then we're going to flip to Ephesians. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 9. Paul writes, inspired by the Holy Spirit, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. By the way, this is a direct quote from Psalm 14 and Psalm 51. Their throats are open graves, in verse 13. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their way. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And then skipping to verse 23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Turn with me to Ephesians 2. What an incredible picture that was. Isn't that an amazing picture of who we are apart from Christ? Do you really believe it? Wow. Ephesians 2, 1-9 says this, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Or really, literally there, we are by nature children of wrath. But because of his great love for us, let's turn the corner here beautifully. But because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy, He made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. and God raised up with Christ, raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of Of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace that you have been saved. Through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Let us pray. Father, we ask for your grace and mercy as we have your word preached to us. And Father God, would you do that which only you can do? Would you speak through a broken sinner? Father, would you open up our ears to hear your truth? Illumine our minds through the power of the Spirit to understand what does this actually mean? God, you are giving us a picture of who we are apart from Christ. And you are showing us your grace and mercy and oh, how we desperately need to see both. So, God, work powerfully. Rescue this morning. Teach. Take our hearts of unbelief and give us a heart of belief. Take our hearts of sin and stone and give us a heart of faith. And cause us, cause our feet that are so quick to shed blood, be so quick to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. We pray that you and you alone receive glory. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Plagiarism, it's not a good thing. I I strongly advise against it. As a matter of fact, one of uh, uh, my cohorts, a, a PCA pastor in St. Louis, was dismissed from his congregation for plagiarism. He preached someone else's sermons. I know you're thinking, were they mine? No, they weren't. Some guy named Tim Keller. But it's a bad thing. We know that it is a bad thing. Actually, uh, even a candidate that's running for office, a high office, uh, has been accused of plagiarism. Even recently, there was an article I read uh, in August uh, talking about this candidate. And it says this about plagiarism. It says, the original author alone should get the credit. Truth applies, this truth applies to God. This writer writes, Teachers and scholars consider the unattributed use of someone else's works and ideas to be a very serious offense. But the public doesn't seem to mind much, at least when it comes to politics. Okay? I don't know this man's faith, don't know if he's a believer or not, but he's certainly a moral person. He's someone who says plagiarism is wrong. It's the taking of someone else's ideas, thoughts, making them as your own, not giving credit. It's a wrong thing. We shouldn't do it. But he says we live in a time that we don't seem to care. Uh, at one time in 1986, a candidate, this candidate, uh, stepped away from a race saying plagiarism caused him to stop. But now it doesn't seem to be talked talk about. When we think about the doctrines of grace, we're going to talk about a spiritual plagiarism. Where maybe we are taking credit for something as an idea or even our salvation that we are not the author of. We're not the creator of. It's God and God alone. We've got to begin with this. That God alone is the author of creation. Can we agree to that? Genesis 1 and 2 very clearly tell us that God created all things out of nothing. He and He alone is the creator. We are not responsible. We have great benefits of creation. He made us in His image. He has made us to rule in His place. He loves us, but we can take no credit for creation. God and God alone does. But even scientists want to erase His name and say, no, it really was a cosmic accident. We can't look to a Creator. And in a sense, there's spiritual plagiarism. We can't remove God's name for what He creates. He creates all things out of nothing. He creates us in His image. And we need to give Him credit and glory for all that He has created. I think for most of you who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, probably so far what I said you would agree with. Most of you who believe that this is God's Word would say, I agree that God is alone, author of creation, But what we're going to look at this morning is that same God who is sovereign ruler is also author and sole author of re-creation or new creation. New birth in Christ. God alone is the author of new creation. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, it tells us that all of us who are in Christ, all of us by God's grace, who have come to the realization by God's grace that we are sinners needing a savior and we have come to him and asked for forgiveness we are by God's grace and enablement embracing his son as savior scripture now says that we are new creations 2 Corinthians 5:17 therefore if anyone is in Christ he is new he is a new creation the old is gone the new has come And what we learn about in Scripture, that God and God alone is the author of that new creation. God and God alone is the giver of not only life, he is the giver of eternal life. And yet, when it comes to salvation, it reminds me of my chemistry lab back in high school. Look like crazy for the smartest kid in the class. Butter them up as much as you can. Tell him or her how awesome they are and ask, can I be your lab partner? Bribe them. And if you're bigger than them, it doesn't hurt, all right? But once they, you realize that let them do kind of the work, as long as my name gets put on that lab sheet, I'll be good. Because I got the smart one with me. But I want my name on the lab report. When it comes to salvation, many Christians right now want to say, we want to write our name on the certificate of salvation, that we want to say that we had something really to do with it. That we responded. That we have faith. That somehow God and us, we work together for salvation. And I'm telling you, it's spiritual plagiarism. God and God alone is the author of new creation and salvation. And really our name should not be on there. This begins with the realization that God is totally sovereign. Sovereign. God owns, rules, reigns over all things. Do we believe that? Well, let's look to Scripture. Psalm 24.1 says this, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. According to this psalm, God owns all things. You, me, the world, the cosmos, it's His. He alone is the author. Psalm uh, uh, um, Psalm 115.3 Our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. It doesn't make sense. I mean, if God is God, doesn't he do what he pleases to do? I mean, if someone else is telling him what to do, or someone else is controlling or manipulating him, is he really God? Well, Psalm 115 makes it clear that God is in heaven. He's loving and merciful, but he's still God. And you know what? He does what he pleases. He's God. He owns it all. Then we see in Psalm 103, 19, the Lord has established His throne in heaven, and His kingdom rules over all. God is sovereign. God is the ruler. God owns it all. He rules it all. He is in control of it all, including our salvation. The way we see this oftentimes, the way we can teach this to our children, is through the Westminster Confession of Faith. Asking questions like this. What are the decrees of God? And by the way, I learned these through seminary through song. That's how I learned them. So I'm going to sing them to you. You ready? What are the decrees of God? And by the way, the guy who who did the tape, I think he was like Mexican, and I cannot say these without an accent, okay? So you're going to get them. The decrees of God are his eternal purpose, according to the counsel of his will whereby for his own glory he has foreordained Whatsoever comes to pass. Not bad, huh? Thank you. Yeah. Mom, someone clapped in my singing. I mean, that's amazing. But what are the decrees of God? Everything that's going to happen comes from his own will. No one has to give him counsel. Everything for his own glory. Everything that will happen pass through his hands. What are... What are God's works of providence. God's works of providence are His most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all His creatures and all their actions. He actually sings, la 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 la. Okay, I got to sing it too. But what is it saying? My poor kids. I mean, just pray for them. I mean, they got a dad who gets up here and sings in front of me. You know how, you know how embarrassed they are right now? I mean, I'm so sorry. I can't even look at them. It's too embarrassing. <laughs> God's works of providence. God is sovereign over everything, everything that will come to pass, everyone who will come to Christ. R.C. Sproul says there's not one molecule that is in rebellion to God. Not one. If there were one molecule in this entire cosmos is in rebellion to God, he is not God, and we cannot trust his promises. Our God reigns. Our God is in control. He is ruler over everything. And that includes this election coming up on Tuesday. You nervous? You nervous? Is your candidate going to win? I mean, do we believe that God is in control of all things? Did you see? Nothing is going to happen without His sovereign will. Nothing. Children of the living God. Yes, we have certain candidates that we're passionate about. And yes, we want to pray that God's will will be done. But we've got to trust Him. Because nothing will happen outside of God's plan. It's a mysterious plan. Hey, Listen. There's already been some mystery on how people have gotten in different places. It's even mysterious to you have senior pastors who sing. But nothing. God is in complete control of all things, including this election. Be of good cheer. Vote. Do your responsibility. Pray. He listens to prayer. He's moved by prayer, but he's in control. He's also in control of your own election to eternal life. Did you hear me? It's important. Not just Tuesday is he in control. He's in control of salvation. He's in control of election into heaven, into a relationship with him. Why is this important? Well, it's important because God says, I will share my glory with no other. There's no spiritual plagiarism. I and I alone should receive glory. There should be no plagiarism, Isaiah 42, 8 says. And why else is this important? It's biblical. And we need to know what God's word says. Even about salvation. We cannot shy away from it. We've got to say this is, comes from God. He's a loving and merciful God. We've got to know this to grow, to know, and to go. Um, this last Friday, we celebrated something called Reformation Day. The world calls it Halloween. But something happened on 1517, and October 31st, 1517, in Wittenberg, Germany. A guy by the name of Martin Luther was railing against the church. They'd taken away God's word. They no longer believed that he was sovereign. They no longer understood salvation. And Martin Luther stood up and nailed on a church door 95 theses that changed the whole church. A guy named John Calvin was born and raised in the early 1500s. He's a French lawyer of all things. And he studies God's word. And he's incredible. age 27, he produces his magnum opus called the Institute of Christian Religion. It's unbelievable. I still read it and been blown away that in the 1500s, he understood God's Word the way he did. And he wrote volumes on who God is and who man is and how we're saved. Always Christ alone, Scripture alone, by grace alone, by faith alone. Not himself, but lifting up Christ. He passes away in the late 1560 and a Dutchman by the name of Jacob Arminius is born. He becomes a Christian and he reads a lot of Calvin's stuff. I mean, Calvin's got a ton of stuff. And he agrees with almost all of it. But Jacob our, our Arminius, this Dutchman, says, I don't agree with five points. And he comes out with this remonstrance, which means like I'm, I'm a disagreeing with the teaching of John Calvin in these areas. And he comes out with what we call the five points of Arminianism. And then shortly thereafter, a year after that came out in the 1600s, I think it was 1615 to 1616, there was a synod of Dort where the religious leaders came and they examined it all. And they came out after a year's study with what was called, we are calling the doctrines of grace, which some call the five points of Calvinism. So I want to give you a little bit of history of what it is that we're doing and uh, where these come from. They often take a, a very bad light, but let's look at who we are uh, in light of that. Our depravity is total in its scope. The first thing is this. It says that every single one of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. There's not one exempt. All of us. The total doesn't mean that we're as bad as we can be. We could be worse. We really can be. The total doesn't mean it's absolutely complete depravity. But the total means this. It's, it's true in every, every single person who's ever born is a sinner. Every person who's ever born has fallen short of God's glory. And you know what this should do for us, Church of the Living God? It should keep us from throwing stones. If we live a different life than our neighbor does, um, we should because we're his. We should not throw stones. This total depravity is total in its scope. It's also total in its extent. Jeremiah seventeen nine says our hearts are, are completely wicked. Um, in Romans three eleven through eighteen, it says there's not one that's righteous, not one. And God's like, isn't that amazing? Not one. There's not one who understands. There's not one who seeks. It's so interesting reading this book because David Sheff, an atheist, ends up praying like crazy to a God he admits I don't believe in. God, please heal Nick. Please, God, heal Nick. Please, God, heal my son. Wouldn't you pray the same? Haven't you sometimes prayed those prayers? Have your non-Christian friends prayed those prayers? So how do we say no one seeks God? How do we say no one's good? He did a lot of good things for his son. How do we say it? Because he was seeking God, it seemed like. He was begging God for healing. How do we say that? Well, he wasn't seeking God for his glory. He wasn't seeking God for his will. He wasn't seeking God for his fellowship. He was seeking God so that God would heal his son. I understand it's a good thing. But there's a difference. He truly wasn't seeking a relationship with God. He wanted God to be a cosmic uh, Pez dispenser that would give him the gift that he wanted. He really wasn't truly seeking after God. Heidelberg says, 91, what are good works? What are those good things? This will help bring clarity. Only those things which proceed from true faith are performed according to the law of God and to His glory and not as such as found in our own imaginations or institutions of men. Here's what this is saying. If we're not glorifying God in what we do, if we're still doing it for our own good, even if it's praying for our kid, if He isn't first and foremost in all we do, it's sin. And we got to say, is that fair? I mean, is God some big stinking egomaniac? He's God and He's glorious and He's good. And the greatest thing that we could do, and He's so right to tell us, is to give Him glory in all things. To seek His face in all things. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, I trust you, my son, Nick. God, you've created him. You can rescue him, you and you alone. But I give him to you. I give him to you, God. God, bend my will to yours. I'll never stop praying for him. I'll never stop loving him. I'm going to beg you to rescue him. But God, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, you're God and you're sovereign of all things, including my son, Nick. And I trust you. God, teach me what you want to teach me through Nick. Because I know you want to teach me a lot through this God, I'm yours and I trust you and I can't see how and I don't understand what you're doing. It seems like you're messing up. It seems like you're away and it seems like you've forgotten me. But God, I trust you and I love you. Give me the faith to believe. Give me the heart to trust. Even with Nick. That's a prayer that seeks God. And the only way we pray that is God gives us that faith and gives us that ability. God's grace to rescue is total. And as we grew up, we used to play games in the neighborhood where something went awry. We all would yell, do-over. Don't you love do-overs? And you all kind of go back to that original spot and say, okay, let's just do it all over again. The only do-over in life is in Christ Jesus. Scripture says that by by nature we're children of wrath. This is what it means. This is very important. We're almost done. God can't reconcile your sinful nature to a holy God. He can't do it. It's like taking an artwork that's been so drawn over and so messed up that all you can say is do over. See, our need for rescue is so great that he can't just take our nature and clean it up. He's got to give us a new one. Do you understand that? It's that radical. That's why Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3, 3, you've got to be born again if you want to enter the heaven, kingdom of heaven. Your new na- this sinful nature can't get there. And the only way you and I can ever be for a holy God is if we're made new in Christ Jesus. And only God can make our nature new. Only He can give us new life through the work of Christ. The need for our rescue is total. And He rescues us totally in Christ. And now our need for response needs to be total. We who were dead, I love what it says in Ephesians 2, we were dead in our trespasses. While we were dead, Christ makes us alive. Grace is the first cause of salvation. It's not faith. Many people say, well, I was saved because I put faith in Jesus. Well, faith is a vehicle that ties us to Jesus. That's true. It's not by works. But it doesn't begin with faith. It begins with grace. It begins with God coming to us and giving us the faith, removing our hearts of stone and giving us the ability to embrace. It's God's grace. And listen, if it's true, if it's true, if it's true that we have to have a new nature, and if it's true that God and God alone can give us a grace to become saved and give us the faith. If it's true that we were dead in our trespasses and, and sins, and a dead man can do what? Nothing spiritually. Can't clean himself up. Can't get himself ready. He can do nothing apart from the grace of God. And if it's true that God has come and made us alive in Christ Jesus, when there is no worth in ourselves, no ability to respond, if it's true, we owe Him an amazing thank you and grace and response. Because our name is not on the lab. His and His alone is. This is the most honoring, grace-filled, true doctrine of Scripture. You and I totally depraved, deserving God's wrath, getting His mercy in Christ. He's made dead men like me and you alive in Christ Jesus. And so when we sing Amazing Grace, we sing Amazing Grace. Amen? Give God the credit. No spiritual plagiarism. And here's the amazing gospel story. We're God's now bestseller. He took his beautiful boy, his beautiful boy, his most beloved son, Jesus, and he sacrificed him so that we can be his beautiful boy and his beautiful girl. Loved by the Father. Yes, we're broken. Yes, we're sinful but we're beautiful in Christ. Isn't that good news? So we come to this table as a tangible reminder of God's grace to us. It's a picture of our depravity. It's so bad that Jesus had to be broken. It's so bad he had to die. It's so bad. Our our sins are so infinitely horrible. An infinite sacrifice had to be given, and it was in Christ Jesus. It's a picture of Christ's punishment for our sins, Christ being broken for us so that we can be healed. It's good news. Let us pray. Father, total is your grace. Total is your holiness. Total is the amazement of a God who would demonstrate love for sinners like us, that you would come in flesh, Jesus, to rescue us. To do what we couldn't do, to be that righteous one, to be that one who seeks God's glory, the Father's glory. Jesus, you did nothing that your Father didn't tell you to do. You continually sought after your Father's glory and His glory alone. And then you became a curse, our curse, our sin, so that we could become that beautiful boy, and so that we could be loved. So we could be forgiven, so we could be made new, so we could have a do over, and we can have life that reigns in Christ. And Father, we thank you for amazing, lavish love for a sin torn world. And now we ask you to feed us afresh through this table. Remind us of this love as we take this bread and wine representing Christ's brokenness for us. And it's in His name we pray. Amen. As the elders come forward, they're going to prepare the table. Take a few moments, prepare your hearts.